1: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt, and I'm joined by the gloved wang, <laughs> Estefan Angel de
2: the never boss. You would never know from your (laughs) demeanour that you're on on holiday this week.
0: I am indeed on holiday. Steve Anglesey, welcome. Welcome. Yes, this is a bit of a strange one. This is the first time. Snowflakes. Yeah, hello, snowflakes. Um, Let's just, I'm just going to fill the listeners in as to actually what is happening here. So, as you know, we've been doing the podcast from our bunkers since, um, well, mid-March. And it's now glorious June, of course and um but this week our pod studio um and i mean it's basically an office <laughs> is, is in the is in the midst of being moved somewhere else so we are having to do this over uh zoom which is uh, which is second to daft middle-aged men like me and steve quite a time to get our head round <laughs> today, but well, we hope it's there, so um, if, the, if the sound is a bit in and out, whatever, we apologise, but next week we'll be back to the normal, normal um, desk setup, how we normally do it, uh, fingers crossed, uh, but for now, we are on Zoom, and, uh, and well, I'm, just, hope...
2: I'm just imagining how <laughs> exuberant your intro will be if we've had to record
0: all this again, because it didn't work. If we have to record all this again, no one will ever hear this, but the intro will be, hello and welcome to the new York podcast, Steve, do the news, who's the next show of the week? See you next week! <laughs> that will be it. <laughs> because I am on holiday and the weather outside is glorious, is, I'm, my tan is looking superb. Of course, sadly, I'm probably not going to be able to go away this year as things stand, no. um, but I'm very lucky in that I don't live in the city centre here in Norwich I do live very close to the river so every day so far this week I have ventured down to the river with a picnic blanket and some headphones and a couple of beers and a book and it's been absolutely glorious but I but dear listener I had to do the podcast before, so I've come back I'm in the spare bedroom um, and, and yeah he, he, here we are selfless indeed so we will get to the news now um, normally, at this stage, of course, I tell you to go and check other news sources because of the daily briefings and stuff, and a lot of you would just come to us for your news because we don't have those daily briefings anymore. Um, they, they stopped on, on Monday. What I would say is probably still do keep up with the, the news from other sources as well, just for the time being. And when you can, when you can stop doing that and you can just come to us again, we'll let you know we will let you know so we'll get to the news and of course there's plenty of it um then we're gonna we're gonna have a little bit of a we've we've gone to some of our um correspondents haven't we steve and we've asked them sort of what four things have they learned um,
2: years, because of course the anniversary of the referendum has um, has just passed hasn't it it was the referendum was 23rd of june 2016 as if anyone could forget numbers a date that is a date that will live in infamy and a date which is seared on on um seared on our souls
0: yeah uh, that, that's right so, so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so we will we'll we'll dig in with four useless ones but there are some good ones from far cleverer people than us matt withers our roving interviewer stroke reporter uh, will be with us as well he's spoken to uh, Florence Haller, who this week in the European has written about photographer Jacques-Henri, excuse my French, uh L- Targ, I imagine that is somewhere. I'm sure Matt gets the pronunciation right, so you'll find out <laughs> whether I got it right or wrong uh, in a few minutes. Um, and then, of course, there will be here. I think Brexit wrong, here.
2: almost certainly wrong.
0: Almost certainly wrong, yeah. I got Florence's name right, um, yeah, and, big, Matt, right. and I can pronounce Matt with but, us uh, but otherwise, yes, almost certainly got that wrong. Uh, so, Steve, I, I have to—I'll be perfectly honest with you—I'm am I'm a little bit out of the loop because you know I've been drinking beer and, and sitting in the sun. So, fire away and tell us the news.
2: Well, I've been missing you. I tell you, um, I tell you two things that I've—well, one thing that I've, I'm really heartened by is that in Britain, you can you can become a billionaire in Britain. Richard Desmond is worth two point five billion. Yeah, Um, Have you seen the way he spells dough, as in money, in in his emails to
0: Robert (laughs) Jennings? He said,
2: I don't want to give a Marxist council all that dough, referring to Tower Hamlets council, and he spelled dough,
0: D-O-E. Wow. (laughs) 2.5 billion. Wait a minute, isn't a dough a deer? A female deer? It is. Well, well, my my daughter, Ruby, um, who's almost 13 now, when she was... When she was very young, she had bad eyes, very bad eyes, and uh, she had to go and have uh, countless consultations, and she had a very big, well, big for a little girl, uh, operation on her eyes. But it's it's absolutely sorted now, completely sorted, bang straight because she had a lazy eye and muscle problems and that kind of thing. Did an excellent job at Moorfields Eye Hospital. But the wing of the hospital is called the Richard Desmond wing. Oh, my goodness. Well, there you go. And I always... Good works. He certainly has put some... He's cert- oh, yeah, he's done... And he, uh, he's very heavily involved, I think, with the Teenage Cancer Trust gigs as well, yeah, isn't he? That's right, yeah. Um, so, you know, he has done some good stuff. But I thought it was interesting that someone with Richard Desmond's publishing past should be putting money into people who lose their eyesight. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm putting two and two together there, Stephen. i um, making,
2: um, making, making a crude joke. I'm making a crude joke, yeah. <laughs> I've also been working on my, um, on my... Uh, script for my police uh, my new detective show which i'm, okay. I'm writing right tell t- us about that it's called test track and trace <laughs> and it's about three three uh, detectives reg test he's a maverick cop with a taste a thirst for justice and a thirst for hard liquor there's kevin track he plays by the rules but he's hiding a dark secret and then there's oh. tracy smith it was trace obviously test track and trace she's <sighs> hard boss. She's fighting crime and um, sexism and and Essex girl jokes. And they are involved in a race against time to stop a killer pandemic. Uh, and the way they do that is they just phone people up and they hope they answer. And then if they don't answer, well, they, they just I can't, up again.
0: I can't wait to see it. It does seem like um, it, it, this would have been a huge hit in the 80s. It would be, yeah. I mean, that nine o'clock sort of hot um, nine o'clock just before the news on ITV yeah. where where yeah. the likes of uh, Cat's Eyes and um, Dempsey and Makepeace used to be
2: it's a little bit new
0: tricks I think very good very good yeah. I like yeah. it I like well maybe Richard Desmond wants to fund it
2: well you, you never know it sounds good they, they, there's gonna be episode two is going to be the case of the missing app <laughs> Then episode three is going to be the Apple talks mystery because Hat Mancock says he talked to Apple and Apple say he didn't talk to he didn't talk to them about this. So you know what he probably
0: did though? He probably went into the Apple store, didn't he?
2: He went into the up to the genius bar. And yeah. I said, Can I talked to you about this I'm in charge of of coming up with a test and trace? And, and they just went
0: there. Yeah, they just went, Course you are. Course you are hat. No problem. We'll sort
2: it. And they said you might—you're you know, going to have to make an appointment for later on today. And he went, "Oh well, okay." Um, the other thing that he might have done is phone up and ask for Steve Jobs. or <laughs> just emailed him,
0: and Steve dot Jobs at apple.com.
2: And I don't think anyone's picking up those emails anymore. So maybe that's—maybe that's what happened.
0: It might be. Or he's actually been emailing the remaining Beatles. Um. <laughs> <laughs> The Beatles, The Roof, Savile
2: Row. Yeah. So <laughs> he's always written to him. <laughs> he's written to them, yeah. Uh, dear Paul and Ringo. He'd get a response, wouldn't he? But um, Well Ringo won't
0: sign say, it, would he?
2: Well, <laughs> I tell you what, my friend um, my my friend who I've not seen for, for, for many years, um, Matt Snow, the man in the know, former editor of um, Mojo magazine and a fine music journalist. He once um, he had a, a copy of Revolver which had been signed for him by Paul McCartney and then he went to interview Ringo Starr and he, at the end he said I hope you Ringo. sorry it's a bit embarrassing but I hope you wouldn't mind um, signing this copy of Revolver. This was you know 10 years or so ago and um, and Ringo dutifully signed it and he, but he, he did say you're going to have some trouble getting the other two. So uh, <laughs> So there you go. Um, can we talk about four years of Brexit and what, what I think we should. So this is Brexit and what have you done to continue the Beatles vibe? Yeah. So it's four years on. And do you want do you want me to say what I have learned or, or do we or, or do you want to tell the listeners what you have four things that you have learned
0: well i'll tell you what i'll 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 start um let me just now bear with me uh dear caller and listener because i've got to get a different thing up on my computer now right where are these okay so i mean i mean we've learned a lot haven't we and um an awful lot and i've learned a lot about the country i've learned a lot about i've actually learned a lot about a lot of the uh, I, I guess this is ignorance on my part, really. Um, but I learned a lot about other people as well. I think I kind of thought that generally, I was my beliefs and the way I viewed politics and the way I wanted my country to go was probably shared by about 80 percent of the people. Now that doesn't mean to say that they would all vote Labour or they would all vote Tory, of course. But what I'm saying is that they would be progressive and and want to go forward and embrace positive change. um, That obviously came crashing down. But my my four points, that's the sort of overriding one. My four points is what we certainly have learned is that um, sadly this country, and I'm not necessarily saying this is just down to Brexit, but the whole fallout from it, of course. This is not me saying that Brexiteers are necessarily bad or intolerant people, but I think the country is probably not as tolerant as I thought it was um and you know the the brexit vote did for some people seem to give them a green light to 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 be racist um again i'm not saying that brexiteers some of my best buddies are brexiteers i'm not saying that at all it's fine if they've got a political argument i'm not saying they're racist but i think that we've seen some pretty ugly things in the past four years and, and some of that the people thinking they're allowed to do that has come from brexit um and uh, one other thing I've learned is that it, it's not a given that that status quo at the centre of politics wins, mm. um, and I, I I kind of thought it was. I, you know, since if you know, I was I was only ten years old when um, uh, when Thatcher left, and obviously I grew up in the north. You the first part of my life was very much, um, you know, everyone you met hated Thatcher pretty much. And and then from then, I I felt like we had sort of reasonably progressive centrist governments until, well, until Theresa May really. And she, I don't think that Theresa May is really a right winger. I think she felt she had to be um, because she thought the country was moving in that direction um, because of the Brexit vote. Um, So what I I think we've learned is that winning isn't a given for the for the status quo, the centrist of either party, Labour or and, and and we've got to fight for that centre ground. We've got to win it back. And I think we hopefully, you know, with Keir Starmer in charge of Labour Party, that's happening. Um and I think the the third thing I've really learned is that talent is no barrier to success in this country anymore. <laughs> uh you know, we've got a we've got a prime minister who really should have stayed just being a guest on Have I Got News for You and being a you know even if it was one of those sort of funny, um, very Tory, eccentric MPs on the backbenches. benches. Um, the fact that Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister is pretty extraordinary, um, really. The fact that Jeremy Corbyn, and I know this happened just before Brexit, but the fact that Jeremy Corbyn never got anywhere close to leading um, uh, uh, the Labour Party is still astonishing to me. Um, so, yeah, talent is no buy to success. I think that would that's also true of me and you, Steve, and the thousands of people listening to this podcast. <laughs> I will surely agree, yes. Successful podcast by two people with no talent. Um, and um, finally, though, and to, uh, just because I don't want to be too gloomy about this, you know, I'd kind of forgotten, I've been on holiday, and I'd kind of forgotten it was four years until I was actually sat by the river in the blazing sunshine and happened to check the date and thought, oh, my God, it's four years ago. Um, and... But, but what what we've also learned is that there is there is hope for the future because there is a huge huge and new generation of europhile out there of people who uh, have been robbed of this relationship who were either too young or whatever who are determined and I include the new European of course in this you know we we've been your media outlet of choice, and that will continue um to still hold that centre ground, to still be progressive, to still want to be part of the European family. And that's what gives me hope, because although I'm not a young man, I'm not an old man either, and I think in my lifetime we will see Britain re-entering some kind of relationship with the EU. I don't know what what the EU will look like then, but I I think, um, you know, I do think that. And I think perhaps before the vote I would have said that most people are not in Britain aren't really fans of Europe or the relationship with Europe. However, they're pragmatic enough to understand that the relationship is worth having. So I don't think, you know, my feeling was that no one was really sort of really loved Europe, but got it. I was wrong, obviously, but I think now because of what's happened, there is going to be a far more educated generation who absolutely will know the benefits of being in and the downside of being out of Europe. And I think, you know, for, for, for our kids, the generations that followed that, you know, w- w- I hope that we've made the mistake on their behalf almost yeah. so they don't have to. Um, so there's my four things. G- give us your four things, Steve.
2: Well, one of them is the same as yours, I think, in, in that I, I really believe that the way that leave oversold this and will lead to leave a remorse. And, and I think that coupled with what you've said about the young people of Britain and the fact that we've got a, you know, for the first time, there is a, Pro EU movement in this country means that we will return to the EU. I've, I've got no doubt about that. I don't think it will be for uh, for a good few years. Maybe not for twenty years. Mm-hmm. So I think that I've learned that. Um, I've learned uh, about David Cameron that that really his second biggest mistake. You know, ap- after having this referendum at all at a time when um, you know there was there were so many. Um, well, I mean, I think people. People were, were necessarily affected in the referendum by stuff that was going on in Calais and by stuff that was going on with, um, um, with uh, terror groups in the UK and, and Europe. And that definitely informed the way that people voted um, in, a, in a, a very bad way. So, I mean, that was a mistake. But I think his second biggest mistake, imagine how different this would have been if David Cameron had said on the morning of the 24th rather than, right, I'm off. Um, and I'm going to put my trotters up and go to Nice, as, as um, was so memorably said. Um, imagine what if he said, well, you know, I need to now take this back to to the EU um, and then come back with a new offer. And, you know, as, as, hap- as has happened before, as has happened in Ireland and in other countries, um, we'd had a new offer from the EU and then we'd had another referendum on that uh, six months later. And, uh, you know, I think in all likelihood, brexit would have been put to bed by that so i think that was i've learned that that was a big mistake i've learned i learned quite early on i think we started the new european and and many many listeners will will disagree with this i think we started it with the idea that we had been cheated out of the 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 referendum result that there'd been widespread cheating there'd been widespread interference that they'd you know that there'd, there'd been some outrageously fake claims and some foul claims by the 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 two leave campaigns i think some of that is true to an extent but i do think that the leave campaigns won primarily not because of cheating or russia or you know uh, 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 dark money or dark data or anything like that i think they won because their message was simpler and better than the remain uh, campaign's messaging. I think the Remain campaign was incredibly poor and led by two quite unpopular people. Um, and then coming from that, the fourth thing I've learned is that failure to, a failure to recognise this doomed the, the People's Vote campaign, which was magnificent in many ways and which we all took part in it. But it was doomed from the start for a, a failure to recognise this. What was the central message of the Leave campaign? I don't think we ever really... one out did we and we never really worked out a coherent way of articulating why exactly another vote was necessary and we we couldn't even agree on the right question for another vote um because we were you know we were we were taken down blind alleys by um talk of you know was was with things rigged was money coming in from overseas um, uh, all of this uh, was was data manipulated in, in illegal ways. Um, so those are my four things. I've got some. Have you got the list of the
0: contributors' things in front? I of have. You? Do you know? I was thinking just because uh, Liz, Liz Gerard's her number. If we if we would start with her because her yeah. a <laughs> so, so
1: basically, Liz we have um, the leading
2: contributors to the to the the the, the new European print edition and website. For their four things, four things they have all learned, and then we've got some of yours as well. Uh, uh, some that we got from.
0: from so I tell you what, why don't um, uh, why don't we run through all four? I was going to do this as first because I think one of them is really I would like to talk about, and it connects really well with yours. So shall I read Liz's out? I'll just yes, do all four, and then we can talk about them um, afterwards. So let's start. Let's a journalist of some standing, uh, former Night at the Sunday so Times, I think, and had desk jobs at the Times as well, So, and writes some brilliant stuff, mainly on media for the New European. Been around since pretty much dead dot with regards to the New European. Um, so here's Liz. Uh, as psychologists know, but I didn't, you can't fight emotion with facts. If a political campaign stirs up emotion, um, as seen with populist movements and immigration, you can argue the facts so you're blue in the face, it won't cut through. Two. That people don't care if politicians lie to them, and in fact they expect them to. Three, uh, give people a three-word slogan, true or false, and they'll start parroting it, even if it's meaningless. Brexit Mm. means Brexit. Really good example. Um, That despite the disapproving readerships, the press is as powerful as a. uh, Sorry, not disapproving, but despite the disappearing readerships, I think she means in print because um, you know actually no one's read news in the sort of ways that they do now in, in such great numbers. Um, the press is as powerful as ever, uh, both in influence the way people think um, and the way they work hand in glove with political parties. It's a two way back corridor. They tell politicians what to do and in turn act as PRs pressing on the message, uh, the message they want to get across. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just briefly talk about those and then we'll move on to the next one. I think. The first fact, and I'm really interested in political campaigning. I've done a bit of reading around it for the past sort of 10, 15 years, and uh, that is such a you know is it, it, such a, um, a, a pertinent fact with regards to Brexit um, and the and the referendum and what we've seen since. Um, but it works both ways. Obama's campaign actually didn't it didn't really have much to it. There was no overriding big policy. It was just hope. That was all they needed. Uh, yes, we can hope. That was it. And, you know, Brexit was like that with nastier terms. Um, that's really, really fascinating, I think. And how do you find what, what is, I think, you know, Labour's, uh, if we take Labour in 2017, Labour in 2019, it, looking back at their campaigns now, they were both pretty crap, actually. What was different in 2017 was that Jeremy Corbyn was excellent on the stump and he managed to get behind a wave of, of young people who didn't want you know, for whatever reasons, didn't want it. The actual cut through of the campaign, I can't remember the slogan, can you? You know, I can't remember much of the messaging right. from it, uh, from either of them. So now we've got someone like Keir in charge, and the Labour Party seems to be sorting itself out. it will be fascinating to see if we have uh, the next campaign, how, how that works out, if they are both emotionally led campaigns, um, you know, often you win campaigns, and I've said this a million times before, on fear or hope, you know, and if you can get a bit of both, then you've hit the sweet spot. Yes. Very difficult to do that, but in a way, Leave did do that because they got they gave people hope, all the money for the NHS and getting back our own sovereignty and all that kind of thing, and they also gave them the fear um, with regards to immigration and things like that. Now, the official Leave campaign were clever enough to let Nigel Farage stand in front of pictures of people queuing up and put together a really powerful, very powerful campaign, whether they, you know, obviously a lot of it was complete and utter, you know, lies. Um, Certainly, if not lies, then very much mistruths. But um, but the messaging itself was was really good. On that final point that Liz makes, now Liz is often far critical about the press, (laughs) than I would be. Um, I think the press is powerful. I think the press is very, very powerful. Um, but, and, you know, we do have more right-wing press in this country than we have um, centrist or, or left-wing press. But it's far, it's too easy to just go, um, you know, the press tell politicians what to do and then do their story. And that, that is not a relationship I, I recognize, really. Um, obviously, people high up in news organisations tend to be friendly with, um, you know, in a professional way, maybe even in a personal way. This is nothing new. With uh, members of parliament, prime ministers, etc, etc. There are often business interests wrapped up with that, of course. Currently watching Succession, which is brilliant, and uh, we see that in, in there. Um, that's nothing new. The general Westminster lobby reporters for any newspaper. Are after a good tale and after a good tale that their readership will will like now as much as you guys I'm sure the majority of you all hate the Daily Mail I used to work there and you know I've been behind enemy lines a bit and um, I, I know that there is there is just a a good journalist has to know what his reader is will my reader like this story um, so often it can be misconstrued along those lines now that's I'm not defending the way that the Mail Um, you know, went completely batshit crazy in the last couple of years of Mr. Dacre's term. Um, But, you know, to say that they are the PR of the government is not true. And we've seen that from all the papers, even the Telegraph actually, which maybe has crossed that line a few times recently um, in the way that they have covered the coronavirus. So I'm not, I'm not really willing to accept Liz's fourth point, but anyway, Steve, what do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've got problems with the fourth point again. I think the rest of it is um, the the rest of it like like most of the stuff that Liz Liz comes up with is is more or less bang on. Yeah. Um, Let me uh, let me come to uh, to Alistair Campbell's because these are are pretty stark um, and uh, I think we'll do these in full and then we'll have to sort of pick and choose between some of those. Just for time, but also um, because we will, uh, we will run these, um, I think, in full in a future issue of the newspaper. Um, and because, obviously, we've, we've echoed each other's points. But Alistair says, uh, number one, he's learned a lot of people don't mind being lied to. This has mm. got major implications for how politics is done and whether politics can ever succeed. Number two, shame has died. There is no black that the Brexiteers cannot say is white and vice versa number three europe 's politics and media are much more serious than ours. and you sort of knew that anyway, but it is remarkable how many foreign politicians, journalists, experts all speak and write better English than some of ours and Number four, we are widely viewed in a, as a country in decline and I think that, that is, I think that is undeniably true um, when you talk to people um, from Europe and um, I think that's that's true, not just of Brexit, but it's true of our handling of the the, the COVID-19 crisis, um, and it's something that um, it's something that, that that Bonnie Greer echoes in in hers. I mean, she Bonnie Greer talks about one, our politics is becoming more presidential. She talks about um, how difficult it is for um, I, I mean, she she says uh, the the inner she talks about the inability of intellectuals to. To penetrate into the the national conversation and i don't think by that she is saying you know we are smarter than ordinary people i think she is is talking about the difficulty that um that uh, intellectual ideas and concepts have got in in uh, in, in getting over uh, when you're against something as simple as get brexit done or brexit means brexit um, she talks very importantly about how people of color especially people of Afro-Caribbean, African-Caribbean descent, hold less of a franchise on this country than she'd imagined. But she does say, which echoes out what Alistair says, she's learned that membership to the EU hid a largely Victorian-infrastructured nation, and the creaks of that are going to become more apparent um, in the years ahead. And I think we've seen that, haven't we, with, mm. with this crisis, you know, that we were laughing about the test track and trace thing earlier on but it really is a, a shambles and a disgrace um do you want to pick up on any other just a
0: couple there i mean bonnie i just will absolutely underline what you said there about intellectuals and you know bonnie um th- th- from the start of this and um you know when she started contributing to the new european and and very wisely i thought when we had her on one of our live podcasts at the end of last year said um, someone I think in the audience had referred to Brexiteers with uh, some term, I don't know, idiots or fools or whatever, and she rightly picked them up and I don't think this person meant any harm, but she said, you know, we can't, that's not how, we cannot do that. We don't win this argument by by calling them names. So she's not saying we're cleverer than, than them when she talks about intellectuals. I think you only have to turn on the news channels, um, you know, Sky News, which I do watch, um, but you know, it's full of just people who really are just talking heads, you know, and just scream at each other and they've just got an opinion. I mean, Good Morning Britain, actually, is usually on in, in the house when I leave in the morning. Um, just, and, I, and Piers Morgan's doing a fine job and he's done a, a good job uh, holding the government to account over the coronavirus crisis. But a lot of it is just people who actually aren't experts at anything screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that has that got, got to be a concern. I think Alistair Campbell's um, for you know a, 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 a so it is so true, and you know I I'm a I, the, the politics and media in Europe are more serious than ours. Um, I think I think that is that is true, um, but just you know it it is sad, isn't it, to hear someone say we're widely viewed as a a country in decline it's it's really a stark thing to see in front of you you know i'm i've never been proud to be british or proud to be english because that was just a that was just a a piece of luck really you know i had nothing to do with it i'm proud of stuff i've achieved Mm. i'm proud of stuff i'm proud of some stuff that our country has achieved you know the nhs the taking on the nazis etc etc but i'm not proud to be british i think that's an odd thing how could you be proud to just Dependent on where you are. But what I am is I'm happy to be British. And I've always been happy to be British or whatever. um, Because I'd rather be, I would rather have been born where I was born than than born in in harder places or in other countries or, you know, where I don't have the friends and don't have the ability to. um, You know, I'm not stuck in one particular class or whatever, I know that there are still class issues in this country and there always have been and there probably yeah. you know, will be for many years. But, I, you know, I had the ability from a very working-class family to go to university. To There are things that are afforded to me that aren't afforded to who are kids who are born in third-world countries or whatever, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. So it hurts me to think that people is a country in decline, and I hope, I really, really hope that it isn't. But we are viewed as such, and that hurts, you know, that does it really hurts i 'm um, not a patriot, but I am happy to be British and I want Britain to succeed because my kids were born here they're going to stick around you know it's something that's it, we've inherited Britain I feel almost haven't we it's nothing that we 've done, but I want her to succeed I want her to be successful yeah and um, and once you 're in the downward spiral and i don 't know where it started, I think I think we are in a downward spiral i 'm not entirely sure that brexit was what prompted it i think it started long before that um but brexit is a is a is a sign of it and uh it's it's just really sad and to see it in black and white on your screen like that is you know it's shocking
2: it It is i'm gonna i'm gonna pick and choose between a few more um and then ask you about that and then we'll do a a few readers ones but obviously we, we we do we do need to to move on as i say a longer longer pieces with these in will will follow probably in the edition that we put out around the, the anniversary of the New European, which is a, I think is, was July the 8th was our, our first edition came out on the streets. I think we might have finished it on the, the, the 6th and it came out on the, on the 8th. Um, so uh, you'll be able to read that with a pint in your hand, of course, um, uh, and with a mask over your, your, your mouth when you're
0: not. <laughs> I've got a, the way around that, though, Steve, yeah, and I've course. been doing this now because I'm, I'm not a big smoker, but I do like a cigarette. And if I'm out you know, in the sunshine with a beer, you know what it's like. As an ex-smoke yourself, you're like, oh, yes, I'll, what a nice cigarette. So I've just taken to cutting a hole in my mask right, where That's my good. mouth is because then I can sip my beer and smoke my cigarette and I've still got my mask on. I mean, I can, why no one else thought of it? I've no idea. That's,
2: it's, you're a genius. You're an innovator. They all laughed at Columbus when he suggested <laughs> Um, Michael White ties into what you were just saying. He says the worldwide populist revolt against globalisation, inequality and perceived elites has yet to run its course despite the failure of populists to remedy these grievances when they've won power. Um, he says Remain would probably lose again, despite Leave's repeated Brexit failures. Will Self, I mean, his 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 answer to this question is, is typical. Typically, typically um, erudite. I'm trying to pick out stuff. He says that he had, um, he hoped against hope previously that the civil service, um, despite its revolving door. Uh, between its upper echelons and the boardrooms of large and rapacious corporates that the civil service still had basic functionality and he's learned that it doesn't and and he learned uh, he said before the referendum I knew that English nationalism was a febrile delusion of punching against our weight on the international stage but since he has learned what it looks like when a featherweight clambers into the ring with Muhammad Ali I mean I think that's the sort of uh, the, yeah. the rest of it is great and hopefully we can come back to that um john o who runs our five website uh, fine website the new he says he's learned that chaos with ed Miliband wasn't so bad after all yeah well maybe
0: uh, <laughs> he's
2: learned that four week new- newspapers that were supposed to last for four weeks are going to last for four years that's obviously a, at a least forever i think okay. you think he
0: means forever
2: i certainly hope so so um so so i mean you know food lots and lots of food for thought here um to come on to the to to what you have said the readers um some of these are brilliant some of these are really heartbreaking to read um some of them you know a lot of you are saying we were cheated in the referendum and i I, you know don't get me wrong i think to a certain extent we were cheated i I think that's definitely true but i still think that you know leaves core message was simpler it was easy to un- easy to understand uh than the core message that remain the truth the truth
0: for the matter about those two campaigns is that the remain campaign was awful it, it was brutal. it was um i don't really want to use the word elitist because that's the meaning has somewhat changed i guess since since then but it did feel like that it was looking down you know we know best Um, us here in this Westminster bubble, the educated among us, we know best. Don't you worry about it. When all we should have talked about was holidays. Yeah, exactly. Dead simple,
2: dead simple. Um, Philip Wurtz, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Philip. He said he has learned, this is heartbreaking. How,
0: How else would you pronounce Philip?
2: I have learned how it feels to be asked, but where are you really from? I mean, that is awful. (laughs) Mark (laughs) Smitham is somebody that I know. Hello, Mark. I hope you're listening to this. All of yours were great. Um, I really enjoyed them. Um, He said uh, said he's learned that it's fine to believe that asylum seekers could get blown up in their own country or drown on the way to ours while simultaneously believing that all lives matter. He's also learned it's possible to test your eyes by driving with a child in your (laughs) car. Stephen Ashworth has learned that 37% of the electorate is such an overwhelming majority that the minority view can be completely ignored, and that in 2016, a vote for Brexit was also a vote for the Prime Minister, controlled by an extremist wing of their party, uh, to give them complete freedom to decide what Brexit actually meant. Um, Ian Smith has learned that when any Brexit politician makes a promise, we should remember George Bush's read-my-lips speech.
1: <laughs>
2: um, Nick Redding makes an important point. He said, I voted Remain, but now I know much more about the benefits of the EU than I did in 2016. Um, Edmund Cohen, Remainers are unbelievably divided. It seems impossible to reconcile, and they find it, to, find it all too easy to fight among themselves. Uh, The reconciliation needs to happen. This needs to involve open and honest dialogue, and it will require compromise from all sides. Um, Nico Nico Rossetti-Lestrange, I've pronounced that wrong, presumably. Uh, This was another heartbreaking one. Number one, I've learned that I returned to the Britain that I returned to two years ago is unrecognisable. I feel alienated. Number two, that the, re- the referendum has legitimised racism and bigotry. Number three, that half of the British public, at least half, has no interest in the truth and is eager to reward opportunistic liars who pander to prejudice. And she's learned, uh, number four, that the Unite- that United Kingdom is a misnomer. Um, I mean these these are all terrific. Maybe we can come back to some of them next week. Heiko Janssen has learned that there there have been no lessons learned from our history regarding propaganda and misinformation and learned that there are far better education on politics and critical thinking is necessary in our schools and universities. And you know, look that doesn't mean we're gonna teach people to all be remainers. It means I, I think that's a I think that is a fair point. We need to engage young people much more much earlier and much better about politics and society and how things work and ask them to make judgments um i could go on and on and on we don't really have time but we will try and pick some more of these up next week they were they were terrific so thank you very very much indeed
0: thank you absolutely uh for 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 helping us out with that and i think i i expected i don't know i I didn't expect them to keep me in the gut quite as much as they did. Um, you know, from you guys and the and the correspondents. Um, but a fascinating fascinating exercise I think. Um right, Steve, we've got um we've got to crown a series for a quiz. I'm gonna
2: do you a little quiz. I'm gonna ask you five questions now. Well
0: I was wondering because 'cause we've got Matt we've got Matt next. Oh okay. Um but I was wondering do you want to do the quiz now? I'll
2: do then the quiz now the good then people can, can listen. listen to Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So the quiz no, question one. When he was a choir boy at Southwark Cathedral, Chuka Amuna sang on which TV theme? Oh, God. Question two. Which Remainer was a host of ITV's This Morning and also appeared as a TV news reporter on an episode of the sitcom The Upper Hand? Remember The Upper Hand?
0: It had yes. one of
2: the guns in it, didn't it? And Diana... What was she called? Diana Weston?
0: And it had... Um, didn't The Upper Hand have... Uh, on a
2: black man, was it? On a Blackman, yeah. Who recently left us. Um, question three. On which children's TV program did Mrs. Thatcher tell a young caller who was worried about nuclear war? Oh, <laughs> God, I remember look, that. Look, dear, the possession of those weapons has been the best peace policy we've ever had. Kind of question four. Dear. The cat who lived in number 10 Downing Street under Thatcher, Major and Blair was named after which TV character? These are all TV questions, by the way. And number five, which popular TV show did Harold Wilson persuade the BBC to postpone on the night of the... 1964 election he persuaded them to postpone it until the polls closed and his feeling was that working class voters might stay in to watch it rather than going late to the polls in what obviously proved to be i mean it was a reasonably close election wasn't it yeah yeah um so they Oh, go. that's good i don't know that, we'll know that one back to those. so chukka ramuna sang on which theme who who was a, 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 before they were a remainer was a host of this morning and they appeared in the upper hand Number three, the TV programme, the kids' TV programme that Mrs Thatcher was on. Number four, who was the cat named after? And number five, which TV show did Harold Wilson get postponed? Um, And now we're going to go to to Matt Withers,
0: our roving and raving reporter. Matt Withers, talking to Florence Hallett. We'll be back after Matt.
1: From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.
3: Hello again. I'm here again, yet to suffer the fate of Poochie to Richard and Steve's Itchy and Scratchy. This week I'm delighted to be joined by the writer Florence Hallett. Florence, how are you and how has lockdown been?
1: I'm fine, thanks, Matt. It's been surprisingly normal, actually, in a way, for me, because although I spend most of my time in art galleries, or I think I do, actually, um, clearly I spend a great deal more time sat at home at my desk when I have... Previously realised because it's really just, it's just life as normal, but with my daughter at home, so it's a bit like a long, school holiday, but possibly with some good weather.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of writers have been saying the uh, the same thing. Um, in this week's paper, you've written about the remarkable body of work of the French photographer Jacques Lartigue, and you can correct me on. pronunciation, um, with the caveat that talking about photography is like dancing about architecture, Uh, for those who may be only dimly aware of him, introduce us to Jacques.
1: Well, Jacques is a really um, uh, odd odd character in a way, because he was almost unknown until the 1960s, um, when uh, a combination of things happened that suddenly brought him to the attention of the world. In. The first thing was that I think he was on a trip, he made a trip to New York and you know he was one of these people, he came from a very well connected family with uh, originally plenty of money, although naturally not, but um, you know he new of knew everybody and made introductions to all sorts of people and uh, he managed to get this work by um, the uh, very important person at the Museum of modern art, John Chagosky, um, who saw it and thought, this is amazing, and we wanted to do an exhibition. Um, and then at the same year, um, a spread of his work, or a, a um, feature of his work, was um, published in Life Magazine. And it happens to be the same issue covering the death of JFK, so it just has enormous circulation. But previously, these pictures have been really overlooked. because he, really, the work that he is almost exclusively known for um, is uh, photographs taken in the early years of the 20th century, um, really before the First World War. Um, in this sort of amazing kind of twilight period really Uh, well we look back on it now as a twilight period but at the time actually it was a time of huge excitement technology was just um, bursting forth really airplanes were being invented had been invented cars um, technology of all sorts moving pictures and cameras also were um were, were relatively new, but developed with an enormous case, um, and he captured all of this. Um, when he was a child, you know, he was born in 1894, um, so he was able to make these pictures while he was a child and in his teens. Um, and uh, because he had a very privileged upbringing, he had amazing access to events going on events at the time so he got to go and what motivated him what aeroplanes do flown uh, all sorts of things he had access to information so that's part of what makes these pictures
3: special and you've described some of his pictures as precursors to paparazzi shots what 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 do you mean by that
1: that's right well when he was Probably, I think it was probably his early mid teens um, His family lived near the de Cologne, which is the Theatre of Paris, where um, this is the uh, rich and famous, and, uh, uh, and uh, sort of uh, and actresses, all sorts of people which were promenade at different times of the day. Um, they drive around in their cars and they'd walk. And it was all about being seen, looking at other people. Um, and it was where you could see these photographs that were the sort of setting of the fashion in their dress. So um, they were the ones who really looked out for and They were wearing these extraordinary costumes. Um, and uh, he would just hang around because he lived really close by. Um, and he would just take his camera and go and hang around and wait for somebody to, to walk past and just jump out and photograph them. Um, and he certainly wasn't the only person doing that. But it was quite a popular thing to be doing. And in fact, I think the kind of um, amateur photographers and, and essentially a, a few professionals actually were, were doing the same thing and um, uh, I don't think he ever had any of his pictures published but there were certainly other people who were sending their pictures of actors, etc. to to magazines to, to be published. So very similar thing, you know, just taking pictures completely um, by chance, unposed. Um, they weren't always welcome. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that it was probably welcomed by some, not by others, because it was certainly a place to go to see.
3: Uh, finally, the film director Wes Anderson is a big fan of Lottie's work, and he's referenced it in several of his works, hasn't
1: he? I don't really know very much about that, um, actually, but um, certainly I'm not surprised that have done that, because they are incredibly striking pictures of all about movement really. Um, and you can see in that, you know, one of the a lot of what he did you can also see as relating to um, earlier work by people like Edward Moybridge, who was the photographer who took pictures of he did motion, the motion study much, much earlier actually, in the 1870s I think. Um, you know, he used the camera to, to capture um, people and animals in motion so that you could start to understand how a awesome, for example, and for galloping. Um, and, you know, one of the earliest pictures that Lati took that has become quite famous is of his cousin, Ishanar, and he got her to sort of leap down a set of steps outside, um, and so she's just captured in midair. Um, and then also another, probably his most famous picture, actually, is a picture that he took, I think, in 1912 um, at the uh, Grand Prix of a motor car, um, a racing car, and the wheels were sorted. Um, and, you know, actually, that's because, although he was able to he knew all of the techniques, he had access to all sorts of magazines and um, uh, a sort of community of photographers that I suppose wrote his magazines and published articles about how to use them. Um, and also to sure, he made friends with a few um, staff photographers, um, and so he learned techniques, that Know, his interest in being able to capture the moment and uh, to be able to describe scenes in images in some ways seems counterintuitive to his wish to become a painter but that was the thing that he really wanted to do and so uh, and he made some success of that in the 1920s um, and had some exhibitions but he Uh, Yeah, in the 1930s he worked on film sets with people like Lili and Trudeau, um, and uh, yeah, so he certainly had had that interest in himself too.
3: Well if you're keen to learn more about the work of Jacques-Henri Lartigue, and and indeed see it, uh, as I suspect you might want to after that, Florence's article is in this week's print edition of The New European on sale now. Thank you for your time Florence. It's a pleasure. thank you Brexiteer of the week
0: welcome back, thanks, Matt. I think those chats are working really well, Steve actually by the way well, very like good to, you
2: know I'd like to reflect that all of the content of the uh, uh, of the new European newspaper and website so they are really they're, they're really fascinating uh, and I hope you're enjoying them before we do the quiz answers i just I wanted to just get your take on something um Obviously, we talked about the pubs reopening and your incredible cigarette mask. Um, are you going to cut another <laughs> hole? Is that, how are you going to get the beer in? Are you going to, just going to replace it with a straw? Well, uh,
0: mask? yeah. I, I, I mean, I have made I have made the mask all big enough for my entire mouth. Okay, that's good. Um, but there is a slight problem in that the mask keeps getting a bit soggy.
2: It will get damp, won't it?
0: So I've I've gone for I've gone for for a straw. So the, um, so the
2: pubs are reopening on July the
0: fourth. I'm, I, you know, I love
2: pubs, um, and um, I'm eager to go, but I'm quite worried about going. And um, and I, I expect that it will be on Saturday week. It will be uh, quite unpleasant, and um, you know, I think I, I, I think I might take a novelty trip um, and then give it a rest for a while. Uh, that's provided I can get in anywhere. There is a a social media campaign at the moment it's called uh, hashtag Neverspoons and it is asking people to when pubs to reopen to boycott weatherspoons. And I just before we moved on to the quiz answers, I just wanted to get your take on that because obviously some people I mean I've not been in a Weatherspoons apart from to interview Tim Martin. Yeah. Um uh, I, I didn't really like Weatherspoons to begin with, but I've certainly not been in since the since the you know not just since the result but since he began his his sort of um his uh pro leave campaign um simultaneously i've you know i've 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 not bought anything from dyson or or other um so people are i think people who will listen to this are already boycotting wetherspoons but there's a there's a thing to there's a campaign to boycott wetherspoons tim martin obviously pro-Remain, then he was heavily criticised at the start of this epidemic for refusing to pay staff wages when venues were shut and he, he said that people who worked in Weatherspoons should go and find oh, a job. Um, then he had to go back on that and obviously people were furloughed. Um, Unionised uh, Weatherspoons workers are, are against this campaign. They say that boycotting Weatherspoons will cause cuts to their hours, it will cause them yeah. loss of earnings. Owen Jones seemed to be in their corner. He said um, they were right, you know, it, it, boycotting Weatherspoons would lead to job losses and the loss yeah. of hours. But then he also said, well, but if people want to boycott Weatherspoons for other reasons, like Tim Martin's views, that's obviously their call. If they're doing it on the, the basis of workers' rights, then that's violating the wishes of the unionised workers. So what's your take on this? Well, I,
1: uh,
0: again, no great fan of Weatherspoons, although I have to say, I haven't boycotted. I can't remember the last time I went into. A, I think I might have. I think the last time I went to Wisps was in a train station, actually. Right. Um, waiting for a train. It's not. It's that you know. I, I, I might. And it's. It's not because of Tim Martin's views, because I think that people are allowed to have different views. It's just that I don't really like the atmosphere in the, in the pubs. I'm willing to pay a bit more for. Yeah. You know, I just—it's just not—it's just not, it's just not for no me. Atmosphere. It's just not. Yeah, it's just—it's just not for me. But, um, but yeah, I cons- my concern is that a lot of people who are probably you know on low incomes and um and like tough enough already. I, I I don't really want them to have to lose their hours, lose their jobs, or whatever. But I mean, so there's there's two there's two sides to this story, isn't there? And I can see what the union are saying. Um. So no, I, I, I'm I, I'm not going to be boycotting um, boycotting Wetherspoons, Although I have my own free will, and given the opportunity of going to a Wetherspoons or indeed going to a nice, um, you know, regionally owned pub that's, uh, that have you know that have been battling battling just to, to to stay afloat through this whole thing, I will be choosing that one rather than the rather than Tim Martin's. But that would have been the same beforehand, frankly. So, yeah.
2: I mean, my worry is that well-meaning Remainers, you know, that, that some kind of official campaign will happen, a physical campaign will happen and we'll get, you know, we'll get well-meaning Remainers trying to block people, um, trying to block people's entrance to, um, yeah. to Wetherspoons pubs and all that that, that goes, goes with. And I think that would be, I think there are much better ways to to express, um, to express yourself. Absolutely, uh, I agree completely. That, uh, um, it, that that is a that is, uh, I think the optics of that, pardon the pardon the the pub. not a good idea. Would be uh, would be really dangerous. However, also here's I, a little
0: tip. In my opinion, uh, July the fourth, I would give the pubs a miss.
2: Yeah,
0: it's my opinion. I am certainly not rushing back into any any pubs, and but that you know means, that for me is a big deal. You know, but by all means, why put money in these
2: people's pockets? You know. Uh, Tim Martin is. Uh, uh, we met him. He was a nice, a, a nice enough guy. He sort of glibly admitted that some of the things that he'd been saying he'd found out were untrue, but yeah. he'd not really bothered that much to correct them. Um, he has spread a lot of disinformation. James Dyson, why give him your money? And I am also leading a boycott of Rocco Forte's luxury hotels in uh, Mustique <laughs> and places like that. So, so don't give him and your that- money.
0: That is a big deal for you, isn't it? it because will.
2: That will break Rocco, yes. Um, it, can we get yeah. to the
0: quiz answers? Yes, please. I don't think I've done very well this week, and I'm not well, that bothered because I'm on holiday, you know?
2: This was a TV theme quiz. So when he was a choir boy at Southwark Cathedral, Chukka Ramuna sang on which TV theme? So you've got to imagine what TV themes had had sort of... Uh,
0: <clears> so Chukka's about the same age as me, so it must be something around sort of late 80s. It is, yeah early 90s and it's got a, cl- a, a choral feel i'm presuming it's got a choral feel yeah because it'd be a bit of an odd choice if it was some rock music wouldn't it
2: i've got f- i've got to say i'd forgotten that th- th- this theme tune entirely after i to, uh, I, t- uh, I don't know i, can, like I, I said can't... it was a comedy theme
0: tune it was a comedy show ah it's oh, man. like ah.
2: many hints
0: Mm, well, I, I'm sure I could get this, but I don't want to. We shouldn't just sit here for an hour. Well, um no. so so give us the answer. It's Mister Bean. The theme
2: to Mister. Oh, of course. Number two, which remainer was the host? A host of ITV's this morning, uh, and then also appeared as a TV news reporter on an episode of Sitcom the Other at the Upper Hand. I had absolutely no idea about this. A
0: host on ITV's this morning. Yeah. Uh, so was a
2: horse. She was a. It's a female. It's a female remainer. Uh, and I had no idea that she'd done this. Oh goodness. Um, I, I, I really. I don't know. It is. It's Anna Subri. Anna
0: Subri. Anna,
2: Soubry. Anna Soubry was a. Um, when did Anna Subri host this morning. She hosted it in the early 1990s. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, she, she was a she was a, a a news journalist. She was a local news TV reporter in the southwest, and then she graduated to hosting ITV's this morning. Amazing, isn't it? I guess she was a stand-in. Um, was this morning? Was it Richard and Judy who were uh, who were on this morning? So I guess this she was morning with Richard and Judy. she was a stand-in for them. I guess it was produced in Granada, so that would fit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Amazing. So uh, question three. Uh, what was the TV program where Mrs. Thatcher told a young caller who was worried about nuclear war, "Look, dear, look, dear, brilliantly." You just, you just uh, miss Mrs. Thatcher yeah, sometimes, yeah, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those weapons have been the best peace policy we've ever had. Well, that would be uh, Saturday Swap Shop. Oh, do you want Is... to think? Do you want to think again?
0: Why well, sure, it wasn't. I can't, it can't have been going live, can it? It was the one in the middle. Oh, wait a minute. Saturday Superstore. Correct. It was Saturday oh. Superstore. Yeah. Saturday Superstore. What year was that then? Because I'm pretty sure I remember that, but it might be just one of those false memories because I've seen it so many times. I think it would be, it would have been either,
2: I guess it was 1987.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure I remember that.
2: Uh, I think it was 1987. She was interviewed by John Craven.
0: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant footage. Brilliant
2: footage. There you go. The, the cat who lived in Downing Street with Thatcher, Major <clears throat> and Blair was named after which TV character? Well, I, I know the name of the cat. Yeah. The cat's the cat Humphrey. Yes, of course. So who was the famous... Well,
0: oh, okay. So it would have been the civil servant from House Cards.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, no, not from House. No, from um, yes, Minister. From, from yes, Minister. Sir Humphrey Appleby. So there you go. Right. And Thank finally, you. I know you. You're a huge Harold Wilson. Partner. Yeah,
0: but I don't know this. Um,
2: uh, go on. Uh, I I saw this as a question first, and my guess would have been. Um, would have been uh till us do part which obviously was warren mitchell um was that showing as early as 64 but i it wasn't showing as early as 64 uh. and he, it, it it was actually steptoe and son
0: Ah,
2: oh, um of it steptoe and son which obviously was huge at the time yeah and, yeah um and it was an episode of steptoe and son in which um they became uh rich it was actually a repeat um <laughs> bizarrely, but Harold Wilson wanted it. It was shown after the polls closed. I think it was shown at 10.30 before the results show. Amazing, isn't it? Dee, 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 dee,
0: dee, dee, brilliant, brilliant.
2: So, Brexiteers of the Week. Yes, please. What a selection we've got this week. Norman Tebbit. did you see him?
0: I've been down by the river.
2: Well, Norman Tebbitt has written in a column for The Telegraph in which he wrote, Churchill was the great wartime leader in the fight to save this country, he's talking about statues, obviously, and liberate our friends on the continent from the curse of Adolf Hitler's extreme left German National Socialist Workers' Party. Now, I've heard the Nazis called a few things in my time, but extreme leftists <laughs> is not one of them. And uh, some of the extreme left things that the Nazis did, um, they worked closely with big businesses um, especially industrialists um they suppressed the trade unions they banned the communist party and the social democrat party and persecuted uh their members so all things that um that um you know that, that Well this
0: is a bit of a this is a bit of a right wing trope, isn't it this um the nazis were yes. were lefties so, you know because they've got socialist in their um in their title i think what i would say is and if I'm trying to explain politics to young people is that don't think of it as a straight line, but more of a horseshoe.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Katie Hopkins. I mean, exactly. It's got national socialist in the, in the, the title, but just because Dennis Healy called Norman <laughs> Tebbit a semi house trained polecat, cat, it doesn't mean that Norman <laughs> Tebbit is an actual polecat. cat. Exactly. Um, Katie Hopkins is a Brexiteer of the week. Um, she said this week, uh, I mean, she, she once said that migrants were like cockroaches, didn't she? And she's gone on with a weird classification of the bug world. She said to, uh, she was asked about her fans and she said, um, I like to think of us as spiders on an invisible web. And when you twang the thread, we all feel it at the same time. And it's true that followers of Katie Hopkins are creepy, scary, occasionally poisonous. They're fond of hiding in dark corners and they are able uh, to eat only after first vomiting digestive fluid all over their meal to be. So <laughs> it all checks out that um, I've written a lot about Katie Hopkins in this week's new European. She is uh, part of a new social media network called Parley. Um, uh, so please yeah, check that out. that will be great. Um, I mean, Parley, not your
0: article.
2: Bob Stewart is a Brexiteer of the week. He's the Beckenham MP. Um, he voted to end the free movement of people. He got to his feet in the Commons last week to insist that his two French-speaking dogs had to keep their rights to cross the channel regularly via the EU's pet passport scheme.
0: Mm. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I think the fact that he's got dogs that can speak, especially speak French. Is, it's
2: really good, isn't it? And, um uh, Michael Gove answered him on behalf of the government and he Michael Gove said uh, and please excuse my terrible French, Michael <coughs> Gove replied in French, he said nous, defender, uh, nous defendons toujours les droits des uh, de chiens, we always defend the rights of dogs it's yeah. really good to know that this isn't all just a big joke to these people isn't it
0: yeah yeah, um, so uh, are you sure he said duat?
2: Yes I think he did, um okay. Nigel Farage is a Brexiteer of the week. Um, He went over to the Tulsa, Donald Trump's Tulsa rally. Um, Mm. He wasn't going to address the main rally of 25,000 people, but he was going to address the overspill rally of 20,000 people. Um, And then another 100,000 people were expected. They'd they'd done 145,000 tickets um, for this thing. Um, And in the event, um, only 6,000 Two hundred uh, people turned up because most of the people who booked the tickets were, were sort of pranksters um, from uh, from our side, and um, and it's uh, just amazing, really. And he turned up. He, he turned up in a, he was in a pinstripe suit. He wasn't wearing a mask. Um, six of the organisers of the uh, Tulsa rally um, have s- tested positive for coronavirus. So um, so uh, our thoughts are with uh, our thoughts are with Nigel, and at oh. least he put the attendance up from 6,199, didn't he? Um, But a bit brilliant that he was involved in the humiliation of Donald Trump there. But the Brexiteer (laughs) of the week is Freddie Vacca, who is the new leader of UKIP. Oh, wow. He is bravely following in the giant footsteps of Dick Brain and Pat Mountain. Yeah. Um, And (laughs) as soon as he took office, um, he... We, we found this self-penned CV that he'd written and it included amazing personal details. It says, SIGs, yes. two in life. Well, he's, he, he's, only, he's, a, he's, a, he's only ever had two cigarettes. But why does he want us to know this? Why is uh, he putting that on his CV? He, uh, there was some boasts in there. I've scored 175 plus at supervised IQ tests, well above the 99.999% percentile. Right. Um, he said that his hobbies <laughs> included restoring old five millimeter rangefinder cameras and growing ultra hot chilies. And then he listed all the, the languages he could speak: very limited German, Hindi. Well,
0: like I've got very limited German,
2: French, English, and American. I mean, American. Yeah, he, he can speak. We've been crying out for a leader who can speak English and American, as I th- should agree. But most striking of all. Um, are the list of all the books that he's planning to write, uh, presumably in his downtime from, from running UKIP, uh, Epping Forest Walks, that sounds nice doesn't it, <laughs> Greatest Blunders of the World Chess Championships, that sounds intriguing, I wonder about that, and then the next ones are Nazi Germany, and then the Belgian Congo Holocaust. So, um, I mean, welcome Freddie Vacker. Um, I, I, I doubt that we'll be, uh, we'll be occupied with you for very long if Dick Brain and Pat Mountain are anything to go by, but uh, you certainly have a fascinating range of interests and you are I, the Brexiteer I, of the Week.
0: Freddie, the Brexiteer of the Week, I have a feeling I might be heading to UKIP conference again this year. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the greatest blunders of the World Chess Championship is something that I'm very much looking forward to. I'm sure he's got an agent already attached to that one. I
2: think we could do an hour on that alone on the next podcast.
0: Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you very much. And thank you, listener. What should the listener do right now, though, Steve?
2: Well, please continue to send us the four, your, your four things. We'll do some more of those next week for definite. <laughs> Uh, four things you've learned since the referendum if you would leave a great review of this podcast on your podcatcher of choice it would be very much appreciated um uh if you leave us lots of stars if you're on ios that would be great
0: we do do read those out as well every now and then so you know the 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 wittier the wittier the better the nicer the comment is the more likely it is to get on the podcast
2: Please subscribe to the print edition of The New European. New subscribers get 13 issues for 13 quid. Uh, go to theneweuropean.co.uk to subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group or like us on Facebook. You can follow the, at The New European on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y.
0: Or you can follow me at Porritt, P-O-R-R-I-T. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope, I've got my fingers firmly crossed, that this new technology has worked out for us. Uh, We'll be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, please play your bagpipes. Here you go.